0: Welcome to The Magnificast. This is a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. Uh, I'm Dean, a Catholic PhD student in philosophy at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, where I research media and religion, and uh, write as a journalist, and hang out with my cats, and work at a coffee shop and a comic book shop, and uh, that's, uh, that's what I'm about. That's what I do.
1: I'm Matt. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. My research interests are in media archaeology, cultural theory, christianity left his politics and um watching the movie trolls over and over again uh that's <laughs> what my new research interest is i've seen trolls about every day uh in the past two weeks and uh let me tell you it's this is it's good
0: independent of your uh your son's desires sure.
1: <laughs> yeah that's right every day he comes home from daycare and he just says i want to watch trolls and we do
0: nice does he have troll hair yet like is that a thing
1: not yet but it's it's coming <laughs> it's a uh, Halloween's coming up. I mean,
0: it's a perfect costume for
1: a tiny child. Yeah, that's that is a good point. You know what the worst part about Trolls is is that the second Trolls movie, Trolls 2, doesn't come out until 2020. So I'm going to be stuck watching <laughs> Trolls 1 for the next uh, like 3 years.
0: What's so good about it?
1: Uh, I don't know. Well, I mean, he likes it because I don't know exactly why he likes it. There there are lots of songs in it. I think he's really into the songs.
0: Okay.
1: Um but uh, it's a great story about uh, making your enemies your friends. And uh, <laughs> I guess I guess that's what it's, it's all about.
0: Does Do they reconcile with, like, I don't know. Who, I don't even know who troll enemies are. Do they have, like, a Gargamel figure?
1: Yeah, they do. It's really, it's very Smurfs-esque if you start thinking yeah, about yeah. it. So uh, they're the trolls, and they live in a tree. And they, they're trolls not like uh, mean trolls, but they're trolls like the little toy trolls from the 90s uh they live in a tree and there are these other kind of class of ugly looking guys named bergens who are always after them Mm. trying to eat them uh the bergens think that the only way they can truly be happy is if they eat a troll but by the end (coughs) of the movie they find out that the only way you can be happy is if you overthrow capitalism and uh, oh
0: good good good
1: and they kind of they kind of come to terms with that and they live in this sort of like troll bergen utopia after the after that happens they uh they actually they they do um They do uh, actually not overthrow capitalism, but uh, it's too bad. They should.
0: Yeah, uh, Trolls 2 is just the slow decline of the revolutionary government.
1: Yeah, at the very end of Trolls, um, one of the main character Trolls becomes the new Queen Troll, and I think that's really bad. Um, I hate when movies teach your children that monarchy is good. Um, It's not great.
0: No, it's bad even, I would say.
1: (laughs) You know, speaking about overthrowing governments and uh, trolls, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, is, this is the month of October. This is red October when all that good, good revolutionary energy is coming back to haunt us. Um, so uh, I thought instead of reading an iTunes review this week, um, because we don't have any, uh, we could take together, Dean, the political compass quiz, Who Are You?, in 1917, um, this is a, a pretty good... I'm a big fan of any any political compass quiz, mostly because they're super absurd and um, not accurate. But uh, this one is very accurate, I think. So this is a political compass quiz that uh, you have to answer questions about uh, Russia in 1917, and it tells you where you are uh, on that mm-hmm. political spectrum. So you could be a Bolshevik a left a left social, uh, socialist revolutionary, an anarchist, a Menshevik. You could be part of the Black Hundreds. You could be in the Cadets, any of those places. Uh, so Dean and I took it, and um, we're going to share our answers with you right now so you know exactly where we stand in this revolutionary moment, this world historical event. Uh, so <laughs> sure. Dean, where, where are you at? Um,
0: it's funny because I took this quiz, a or the compass test, whatever, a year ago, and I was a left SR back then. Um, but taking it today, I am now a Bolshevik, just like a hair's, uh, a hair, my, my little like red circle migrated a hair's breadth North, um, which puts me apparently in Bolshevik territory. Uh, so yeah, I'm like on the compass here, I'm, I'm two squares over from the left SRs and then my, uh, my circle is just like hovering between, uh, the Bolshevik and left SR, uh, territories there.
1: Uh, That sounds pretty good, though. I mean, that sounds like a good place to be, right? Like, um, you're in that bottom left quadrant where, where all those all that good left communist stuff is happening. Um, That's right. I mean, that makes sense, though. I mean, you're a part of the Communist Party of Canada now. Of course, you probably moved a little bit more to the authoritarian side.
0: I'm almost. I'm not officially part of the Communist Party oh, Canada yet. Dang. Uh, I'm like, okay. uh, like they, uh, they text me and ask me when I'm going to join. And then I'm like, probably soon. That's where I'm at with them.
1: <laughs> So they're still just courting you, trying to get you to get on board, huh? Yeah, you
0: know, I need—I just need to be romanced a little bit by the Revolutionary Party. That's all. Uh, it's not too much to ask, like, a little bit of wine and donning. They did meet me for coffee, so I, that's basically wine and donning, actually, if you're a yeah, I think. I think so. Uh, wh- what about you, Matt? Where where are you at?
1: Okay, so I uh, I got left SRs, so feel good about that. Nice. That's the same answer I got last year, um, so I'm glad that I haven't really changed any. Um <laughs> You guys take so, comfort in that. Yeah. Um, but uh, let's see. So Left SRs, that's the Left Socialist Revolutionary Party. Um, they're uh, a little bit more, um, I don't know, towards the democratic end of the spectrum. Um, so uh, my little red dot, though, is um, one entire... Uh, Box to the left, and also one entire one entire uh, box down. So I'm more left, oh, and more nice. democratic than even the left SRs. Um, nice. So
0: you went south, and I went north.
1: Yeah, it's weird though. I'm I'm further left than the left SRs or the anarchists. Um, so right, uh, <laughs> that's a thing.
0: <laughs> I guess.
1: Yeah, I mean, that yeah, sounds how, cool to how me, How would they
0: determine that? What what would make you more left, say, than the anarchists in a situation like this?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess whatever answer I gave to some of those questions uh, must have been that.
0: There was uh, one bubble, and it was just like, yep, this guy's going left.
1: This guy is real weird to the left. So I was kind of thinking, <laughs> like, um, I don't know. I was trying to think about this political compass test and then, like, the actual political compass test and, like, if they're that different. The actual political compass test has, like, way more questions And they're way different questions, but I'm actually in the same exact spot in both of these, uh, charts. So that's interesting. Yeah.
0: That is interesting. You can, you can apparently compare your uh, responses here with all the other, uh, responses from like the other revolutionary groups or whatever. Um, so maybe you can find out after all where you're at on that, uh, that left, uh, left of the anarchism problem. So, uh,
1: something I like to do in some of my classes when we talk about politics, um, it's not, like, super revealing or anything, um, and it's not even, like, a, a great way to think about politics, but um, something I like to do is show them the political compass test and show them, like, where the Democrats are and where the Republicans are, um, because nice. that's a, a pretty uh, – I don't know, right? It tells you something really interesting about politics that basically they're the same. Um, yeah. So if, – but if you compare the political compass uh, test from the 2016 election to the um, – to the 1917 Russian Revolution one, uh, you see some really interesting uh, confluences of ideology here. So, okay, you and I are both on the left, and that's not surprising. Um, but uh, let's see. Uh, Trump, Bush, Cruz, Rubio are all basically the black hundreds. Uh, <laughs> and Hillary Clinton is, uh, I mean, the cadets, the cadet party. So, um, yeah. That is not surprising, but actually very funny to make those types of uh connections. Yeah, um,
0: it is very funny.
1: Yeah. That that the entire Republican Party are basically in the fascist territory is like I don't know. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I like that. I also like that on this compass the cadets are
0: like just slightly further right than the Black Hundreds, even though yeah, they I know. Not as authoritarian.
1: Right. But and they're they're the liberals. Um Okay. I It'll mean. They'll get you. I don't know. you got to stay away from that right – that entire right side of the political compass is just extremely bad.
0: Yeah, real bad news over there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, well, uh, this week on The Magnificast, we're talking with Jonathan Murden about the uh, – I don't know, about orthodoxy in general and the legacy of the Orthodox Church in the Russian Revolution. He has some really interesting historical points to say about that. That will give some, like, breadth to the discussions uh, we've had about Lenin and religion, uh, a little bit of a different take on things. Um, so, uh, let's go over to Jonathan.
0: Uh, I have really enjoyed hanging out with you on Twitter, so it's nice to put a a voice to the, um, the Twitter avatar. Uh, <laughs> maybe we could just, uh, start out, like, what are you up to? What are you doing these days? Uh,
2: so, I'm an undergraduate uh, in theology. I'm currently on a year abroad in the Czech Republic. Um, I'm studying uh, in Prague. I'm studying various things, bits of orthodoxy, bits of media theory, um, one module in art history. Um, it's a year abroad, so kind of taking the opportunity to just kind of um, do different stuff. Um, what? Well, I mean, what else am I up to? I don't know. Apart, that's pretty much the biggest thing happening in my life right now, really. So That's a pretty big thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it sounds really neat. I never got to study abroad in, well, I did for my PhD, but not for right. other stuff. So it sounds like a cool opportunity. Yeah,
2: it's, it's good. It's good. I've only been here a few weeks, but uh, I like it. So, you know, hopefully, hopefully I'll get the hang of it a bit, get yeah. the hang of the language a bit better over time, hopefully. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Sounds
0: tough. <laughs> um, Matt, what have you been doing?
1: Uh, man, same stuff as last week. Uh, my reports are never very fun. It's just like, (laughs) I'm always just like grading, grading some papers, uh, and getting depressed about whatever. Um, last night. Okay. So here's the thing that I can tell you. So, uh, I teach at a Christian school and that's a thing. And, um, this one class I'm teaching is like this seminar for seniors and like every senior in any discipline, the arts and sciences have to take this, uh, class. And, uh, They had to write this paper called a Christian thought paper so that we could kind of like faculty could like look at them and compare them with like other sort of theological documents that students have written. And we can see, I don't know, what we've done, what we've done to them, (laughs) like for better or for worse. (laughs) And um, I don't know, I was reading through them last night and they're mostly, I don't know, like what you'd expect, like very, very pious kind of things about the importance of Jesus in their life. And I don't know, that's fine um but one student particularly wrote this paper i don't know he must have knew um, my brand must precede me because he was writing about christian transhumanism (laughs) and robots and he even made a nod towards uh object-oriented ontology i was like really (laughs) interested it was like super weird like he must have like researched who i was and like what my interests were before he wrote the paper because they were like all things i really wanted to read about that's awesome uh, so that was really that was really fun. It was, it's nice to get like a really weird paper and just uh, enjoy it. It makes it breaks up the monotony that is grading. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, it's great. Fun, fun stuff. <laughs> what are you doing, Dean?
0: Uh, on Saturday I am gonna go to Portland, Oregon to visit some friends. So this week I'm like crunching everything into the last few days. So uh, it's. I don't know. It's, like, stressful, but also pretty soon I'm going to be not here and on vacation, so I'm excited about that.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. You deserve it.
0: Thanks, man. I appreciate that. You know, not not everybody recognizes it, so it's nice to have somebody say it sometimes, you know?
1: Yeah. Are you going to go to the uh, Tony Hawk Pro Skater uh, Portland Skate Park?
0: (laughs) Um... I would love to do that, but I think I left all my tech decks at my mom's house, so I don't <laughs> think I could, like, earn that kind of street cred.
1: Yeah, well, find those secret tapes, you know?
0: <laughs> That's right. Um, so, Jonathan, I don't know if you've heard lately, but we've become a master at segues, and this is just one more example. Um, because here we are just brutally transitioning right into uh, the next part of this podcast. It's seamless. Um, no one can even tell. <laughs> There's no seams. We're not even, uh, not even sewing this up in post. Um, so, uh, <laughs> uh, we were on this podcast a-, a while ago called revolutionary left radio and they, um, they think a lot harder about their podcast than we do, which is nice. Um, and one cool thing that they do is, uh, they, they asked us to just talk a little bit about our like religious and political commitments and we're going to ask you to do that as well. So, Uh, For folks who don't know what you're up to, what your deal is, um, maybe give them a short little autobiographical sketch.
2: Okay. Uh, I grew up um, in a kind of charismatic evangelical household, um, labor voting, so like left-leaning. And I left that when I came to university and I um, converted to orthodoxy. I've been a member of the Orthodox Church for uh around i've been i've been attending services for around two years now i've been a been uh like a actual you know Christmated member of the church since um a year ago on easter um, uh I was kind of similar to my family kind of labor, labor supporter for a while um and kind of over this again the summer before I left the uni actually i i began moving. Further left. There was a series of events, kind of the the ele- There was a general election here, um, and then there was a kind of the European refugee crisis, and those began to push me further left. Uh, I, I I kind of fell under the influence of the anarchist left, uh, which in England, if you're not, if you're moving to the left of the Labour Party, you end up with the anarchists, really. Uh, but I don't know if I would call myself that now. I don't know. Um, I I'm, I'm certainly a communist of some kind, but I'm not 100% sure of anything exact tendency past that. And anarchist leanings.
1: That's cool. Anarchist leanings are very good. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I like think so. They, I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to say very good. Uh, anarchist leanings are stupendous, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have our,
0: our thesaurus open next to us right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of your brand
2: now. You can't abandon it. How would we, we know the it's Magnificat?
0: It's, it's true. There's really, there's two strategies here. One is uh, to you know take the advice of people that actually listen to this and uh, give them what they want. The other is to just uh, double down uh, on what we're already doing, and I think that's probably what's going to happen. Uh, that sounds very good to me.
1: <laughs> uh, Jonathan, so uh, that's cool, though, that uh, you're a member of the Orthodox Church, um, and also a, a leftist of some variety. I mean, I don't know. That's kind of where I think mean, Dean and I find ourselves a lot of times, too. Um, but um, I think you're the first Orthodox person on this show, so that's very cool. Yeah. First
0: one who was uh, willing to say so, anyway.
1: So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh,
2: yeah, I don't know. I don't. Uh, there's. I mean, there's certainly not. I couldn't comment on how many Orthodox people there are on the left. But there's certainly not really a kind of left Orthodox movement. Um, I think Orthodoxy, like most churches, it kind of has, kind of most people are somewhere between kind of on the kind of liberal reactionary spectrum um but i think that's pretty common in churches it just it, the difference is it's just the orthodoxy um the, the reaction there, there can be the reactionary side can be quite pronounced some well, i mean that's not a difference either i guess actually thinking about it <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> i i think yeah there's but yeah, finding there's not
0: really a left orthodox movement as such, so right. I don't know. Um. <laughs> uh, one reason we wanted to chat with you a bit in particular, uh, especially during October, is uh, I feel like it's kind of it's interesting to talk to orthodox Christians about the history of the left because uh, you know they had a an interesting kind of intertwined narrative in the 20th century with uh, Leninism and uh Russian communism. So, uh we can get into that in a little bit, but uh maybe to start out, could you just say something about what it's been like for you to find yourself um kind of newly adopting like an orthodox community and a leftist community or being adopted by them, however you want to put that. Um what's that been like like trying to hold those two things together? Is it um intention do you run into um I don't know, weird interactions with other people in your churches or do you find it's more natural than you would have expected? Like, I'm just very curious because I've never, um, you know, I'm not Orthodox and I actually don't know that many people who are. So uh, I've always been curious about what Orthodox people think about communism these days. Yeah. Um I
2: mean, it It hasn't come up that much. Um, I tend to not talk about politics in mixed company Um just because I have very strong opinions about everything. Um, and so... If if, if politics comes up, I tend to try and avoid it just because I'd rather not spend all my time with other people arguing. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, it has come up occasionally. Um, I remember one time, this is is an example of a kind of maybe average reaction in that I was in a bar with some friends and it got into politics. And I said that I was probably to the left of the Labour Party. and, And they said, you mean like a communist? And I said, well, yes. Um, to which their eyes go wide and um one of them said to me so jonathan do you persecute yourself or do you ask other people to persecute you Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um he was joking but he also i think kind of did mean that he was I, i think people do i mean the other person said that explains a lot actually so i think reactions are reactions are different um I've never had like an unequivocally positive reaction. Hmm. But again, um, I think I, I, I wonder if that would be the case if I if in, in any other church either. Really, I don't know. Um, yeah, it, it's not been an issue because mostly I just kind of go to church on Sunday and the other things that I go to church stuff. And then I go to the meetings I've been to for organizing stuff on those on like Wednesdays or the other days or whatever, and they don't really the two worlds are kind of I mean it's unfortunate they're separate, but they are in many ways separate worlds, which makes my life slightly easier. Um, um it, it also helps that in Durham the, the left wing community, both the opposite and the left wing community are oh, I'm I'm at Union Durham normally and um both communities are very small. Um so it's It's not become like a major issue at any point
0: right um I'm just thinking too a little bit about uh what it must be like to be orthodox even in the u k um It seems like that would be a lot different than being uh, orthodox in the Czech Republic for example um what uh what drew what drew you to that uh, expression and tradition and um how's that been playing out for you um I was
2: drawn to it because of I think a lot of people who grow up evangelical find it insufficient for kind of sustaining them in a healthy way. My background particularly was quite damaging for me in a lot of ways and so I I needed to get out of that in some way and in some ways I kind of fell accidentally into orthodoxy um, but, but equally I, I kind of um, I found a combination of kind of just kind of descriptive factors. So I felt that just to, to acknowledge that to do theology well, you need a tradition, or that to acknowledge that to kind of live healthily you need a community, like to recognise com- like your kind of your place in the community. Those kind of things I felt were kind of descriptive, as in that's kind of what any healthy Christian community will look like, and it's better that we honest about that, so we can think about it. And there's also the prescriptive level, which is kind of um how things should be. Um and for me, you know, there's I mean, talking about exactly what it is that draws you over a quite a, over a period of time is difficult, but kind of um sacraments, um, kind of the salvation um as life in the church, a union with Christ, uh, there's a significance given to materiality that I hadn't felt in other theologies that I'd encountered, a kind of sense that, um, material, material, materiality does kind of make a difference in spiritual life, um, and needs to be kind of talked about, taken into account. Um,
1: yeah, I could talk more, but I don't know how much. (laughs) No, that'll, that'll make sense. And definitely, um, like, I feel like I get it. So I'm a Protestant and, um, the Orthodox Church—I mean, the Catholic Church too—but the Orthodox Church specifically. I've been to two in my entire life, only two, and uh, they've always been incredibly appealing to me. And I think—I think they've been so appealing to me just because of like the, um, the sort of like harsh contradiction that you feel like when you're in one. That is, it's just like so different than um, than a Protestant church, and uh, that difference is a difference that makes a difference, to be sure. Like. Okay, I want to say this but it might come off a little bit like I don't know, weird. Uh, I hope I hope it won't. Okay, so like um here here's what I'm thinking. Like The Orthodox Church is so cool because there's, like, actually lots of, like, weird kind of practices that that kind of jar you out of your everyday life. Like, lots of different rituals that don't make sense unless you're kind of a part of that community. So, like, making that, like, coming in from um, sort of weird Protestant world uh, into into the Orthodox Church is cool because there's, like, way more mystery involved in the church than, like, you're maybe used to. Like, there's, like, there's, like, a... Like a big screen that you can't see behind, and there's like you know chalices and all kinds of like other stuff going on. Whereas like in the normal Protestant church, it's like uh, you know whitewashed walls and a video projector. Um, <laughs> they like the aesthetic is so good and um, it's pretty powerful, I think. Yeah,
2: that's definitely right. Um, I think I think on, on just on commenting on what you said about it being so weird is that I think that almost all churches are kind of weird in their own way. I don't think that's bad. Um, I'm an extremely weird no. person, anyway. um, but I think that often, at least the churches I grew up in, they would try and pretend they weren't weird. Um, the whole, the <laughs> whole point was this is, you know, you can. I mean, I, you know, you you guys have both been in youth clubs, and you know, the whole thing is, you know, you can to still be cool, uh, which like I guess, but also when you're emphasizing that so much, it becomes there's a bit of a jar between how actually completely weird it is. So it's kind of refreshing to be somewhere where. Um, you know every week we, we go and kiss a lot of pictures
1: and eat blood and I don't know you know what I mean <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe, maybe weird isn't the best description here like what what I'm, what I'm thinking about though is that there's like in in the Orthodox Church there's like a real majesty and mystery to the entire experience right. where, where like Protestant churches are just like um I don't know boring born? yeah
2: <laughs> um I think that's right. I think that there's definitely a sense in which in orthodoxy they there's a recognition of the aesthetic as not being merely aesthetic, That that actually um that that, that actually you know, what things look like or or a kind of what you might think of as purely matters of image do actually do something. They're not merely for show or for illustration or um, and this links back to what I was saying about materiality in that um, the classic example given is obviously the theology of the icon. Um, and when you go into Orthodox churches, the icons are the most obvious thing. Um, they're kind of everywhere. Um, and the icons were at one point very controversial. There was a big controversy um, in the, I think, the 600s. My church history isn't always the best, but you know, er- early. Early. Um, and the theology justifying the use of icons is, is that um, because Christ is human um, and took a body, we can depict him um, using immaterial form, um, which is why originally there were prohibitions on depicting the father. Um, you couldn't depict the father, you could depict the son, you could depict the saints, and these depictions do in some sense mediate the presence of the one depicted. Um, the one depicted is, in some sense, made presence by the image of them, um, and that sense in which um, the ritual of the church, the kind of, um, and its, and the materiality of that ritual is, in some sense, a mediation, is not something that you find acknowledged in Protestantism. It's often attempted to deny, although I I might suggest that, that denial is
1: perhaps dishonest um Uh, well sorry you said the whole thing about the uh images and now uh, my media studies uh, senses (laughs) are tingling um so how can you talk about that mediation because that's super interesting to me um how is presence mediated or how is that understood i guess in worship
2: so um there's a particular understanding of how an image works and it's such that um but when you depict something, it's not merely a kind of um, how to explain this best. Um if you have a photo in your wallet of someone, um, that's not merely a kind of um, that's not merely something exterior to that person that you have. That That is not something merely exterior that in some sense does for you when you look at that picture you are in some sense interacting with that person obviously it's not the same as if the person were there um if, it's not the same as if the person were there in the person we would say the hype you know the hypostasis of the person isn't present themselves but in some sense the image does participate in them it, or and it mediates them in, in, a, in a degree um and and but but this, and this, and I precisely use the image of the wallet because I would suggest that this is a property there's not something magical to icons specifically. this is something that all images this isn't something about the nature of images depicting something. this is what depicting something does, depicting makes present sense um and therefore, when you depict Christ or a holy person, um you can you are in some sense making them present.
1: Uh that sounds sorry I don't mean to derail this conversation completely but I am no, I guess God. Uh that's a really like... cool way of thinking about it I guess um it sounds actually really in line with a lot of what Benjamin says in um art in the age of mechanical reproduction in the sense of okay. like the the reproduced image is uh something that kind of meets you halfway um you do yeah. you have to do the rest of the work though huh neat
2: I need to read Benjamin still. There's a book which I haven't read. I have it like saved on my reading list. Um, just remember to go get the title up. But it's called uh, Image, Icon and Economy. Um, and it's by a guy called Zane, And it's And I think he was a media studies guy, but it's about the iconoclast controversy and the kind of yeah. theologies. That I, so if you're, I, I haven't read that, but I I guess if if you're looking for good stuff to read on this kind of- Always, yeah. Studies, to your <laughs> and that's probably your place
1: to go that sounds neat yeah i love I love like um the metaphysics involved in images that's so weird how we think through those things, but that's cool sorry Dean, what were you gonna say
0: <laughs> well, uh speaking of that like aesthetic attention and how it um just draws you into a different kind of life uh i I think that unwittingly my first um my first connection with orthodoxy actually came through uh this American um nomadic sorry this uh american nomadic punk band called the salters and uh they have an album called the divine liturgy of the wretched exiles and it's like throughout it they kind of very intentionally uh borrow from um orthodox liturgy and you know reroute certain songs uh from orthodoxy but also from american labor um traditions and that sort of thing so uh but it's very funny because um they they have they've built a real kind of aesthetic around that in an interesting way i mean i don't think that they're orthodox but uh they've found some like really powerful symbols within that tradition um which is really a cool thing i think yeah
2: well i mean the, the it's interesting um there's a zine called um Death to the World, which I haven't read.
0: Oh yeah, I have some of those. Yeah, that yeah, guy was like, at Cornerstone.
2: That was basically started by monks, um, right? Um, I've just i forgotten. It was begun um, as a kind of response to kind of um, punk and um, rock and roll counterculture like stuff, um, and it was by monks I think, like um, actual monks as opposed to just people who thought that was cool. Um, but it's basically a kind of appealing to the kind of um there's a a, there is a very severe there's an ascetic tradition which sometimes a very severe one is kind of ascetic of kind of the the holy man and kind of death to self death to the world um and and there was a whole thing about kind of drawing that and kind of punk aesthetics into kind of um correlation that's a little interesting project that i always mean to look into more and kind of explore a bit but
1: uh yeah, that's a really cool yeah. uh zine actually. I he was that that guy. I remember seeing him at Cornerstone like years ago. There was like a, a monk that was actually there like selling their merch. Like they have um oh, that's cool. <laughs> I know they have like really cool t-shirts and they have zines and stuff. But yeah, it is it is um all out of like that orthodox tradition. It's really cool yeah, though. That I mean was, uh... it's, it's such an easy thing to adapt to like um like hardcore, like hardcore music culture. It's uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the the aesthetics overlap quite a bit
0: yeah that's where i first learned about uh father uh seraphim rose uh that's just like a very funny thing like that's the only context that i ever would have heard of that guy
1: right oh uh, yeah well
2: he's he's an interesting one um i mostly know of him <laughs> rather than actually anything about him but like, i haven't read him but i know people he's he's influential interesting um the, the 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 one downside to the the kind of Com- Conversion between like kind of th- those aesthetics is that um, sometimes you get a very odd interaction between that and kind of white supremacist aesthetics um, mm. that needs to be yeah. that, that that deserves more attention than talking about. Um, I mean, it's I I think really that the white supremacist appeal to orthodoxy is at least in the West fairly superficial, um, but it is a thing, and you know. Um, i mean i've 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 spoken to people before and they've said like um I, I i i remember i was chatting with a friend about um tattoos and i meant and and i was saying i wouldn't know what i'd get and they said like what about like you know like one of those orthodox cross or something and i remember thinking like i can't get that in case someone thinks i'm a white supremacist <laughs> <laughs> that's too bad
1: yeah um speaking of that aesthetic even a little bit more um I remember there's this time, uh, this time that I visited the Orthodox church for the very first time it was in college. We went on this trip and went to a bunch of different churches. It was like this whole thing. Um, that's neat. I remember afterwards though, that like a lot of folks were really energized by that, like that Orthodox trip, like that experience, because it was so, I mean, it was so foreign to us as a bunch of Protestants for sure. Um, and like the following weeks after that, I remember like a lot of my classmates were really interested in that theology and in like a kind of appropriative way, um, I wonder if you see any of that amongst people, especially. I think that's probably pretty prevalent on the internet, I guess, um, where people kind of claim lots of orthodox ideas without participating in the community in any way. Um, do you, do you see that that like as appropriative in sort of like an orientalist kind of way? I guess.
2: Um, I have a mixed attitude to it. Yeah. Um, on the one hand, I have a sympathy for it because that was kind of what I did for a long time. Before I did it, I did that sort of thing for a long time, and I eventually realized that I kind of. Was becoming convinced by certain claims that I couldn't just accept one, not actually being orthodox. Um, I, I kind of realised that, like, I was being beside, like, I would be being dishonest to myself if I didn't. So I have sympathy for it. Um, at the same time, I think that there's a way of doing it in which you only engage superficially with the tradition. I think that's the danger. The danger is that you engage superficially, um, and so there are there. There's a lot of there's a tendency among all theologians, I think, to say that oh, Protestants think this, or Catholics think this, or Orthodox think this, and what they mean is I'm I think this. Um, I don't I don't mean to be flippant, but like if if you're an Orthodox theologian, it's not necessarily unusual to write the Orthodox teach X, but actually, like what you're saying may be more or less, maybe slightly controversial, um, or at least not unanimous it's an interpretation in some sense um and there's a certain danger in which in particular ideas about rationality and reason are kind of taken up so there's there's a very influential movement in ofxiology um called neopalamism or they don't call themselves that but neopalamism and it kind of is inside. it's there's a lot going on one of the things they talk about is kind of the Purest knowledge of God is apathetic. The West is over focused on reason. In the East we took we we focus more on kind of unknowing, you know, kind of no God apathetic knowledge. Um, and I think I really like Neopalamism, I think it's really interesting. I think it's quite can be quite simplistic though. And there's a problem when people engage superficially with various popular Neopalamite theologians, and then obviously you simplify that even more. And it basically becomes kind of like, slab. You know, Slabs are less rational than Westerners. Mm. Oh yeah, weird. And 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 I can. I mean, this this I can segue this if you want. If you want a segue, I can segue this into what we're going to talk about.
0: Yeah,
2: please do it. So that that can be bad, and they're kind of. but I think, I think that there's a lot of problems in Russian theology that go back to um, the Petrine reforms, which were happening in the 18th century under Peter the Great. Um, Peter the Great, basically, he, um, soon after he took the throne, he went away on a big tour of Western Europe, um, and he realised that Western Europe was much more... Well, he considered Western Europe being much more advanced. And so he come, comes home, um, and he immediately... Starts implementing these reforms. Um, the most famous of which is that, like, he bans beards. He makes a, he makes the noblemen all shave their beards. And there's a lot of resistance. We go, un, like, you go underground in, in an effort not to shave. Um, but a little... at, at a more serious level, um, this is the first attempt at modernization in Russia, um, and it also involves Peter the Great. Recognises that actually a lot of Western greatness comes from colonialism. Um, and Russia never engages in colonialism in the New World. It's not really able to in that way. Um, but you get attempted um, conquests in various parts of Asia, including wars against the Turks, against the Mongols, against Japan. Um, and so what, what happens is, is that you get, um, there's a racialization of class in um, Russia. By the time of the revolution, there's a racialization of class in which the aristocracy and bizarre and whatever. Even if they don't see themselves as Westerners, a lot of the ways they think of themselves have been forged through categories of colonialism. and A lot of the ways in which they talk about the, um, the peasantry, the workers, the, their subjects, are again categories of colonialism. And so you get this racialization of the mob, um, and there's a way of talking about the Russian people as this kind of mass, this kind of Asiatic mass that needs a despot to rule it. And yet the despot gets to be, re- the despot and his class get to be refined and intellectual. So that, that's, and that's a fairly important factor, I think, for understanding the situation as you enter into the revolutionary periods that often doesn't get talked about.
0: Um, interesting insofar as it's kind of like a it sets up a weird relationship between like the church and uh these kinds of reforming efforts, or uh like um or what what do you find like really important about that kind of connection? The well, the really important thing for the church is that as part
2: of these reforms, Peter the Great deposed the Patriarch of Moscow, um which I think is actually I'm not hundred percent sure, but I think that's uncanonical. I think that's against the canons of the church, he deposed the patriarch. Um, and replaced him with, with a synod, which is governed by a civil procurator. Uh, procurator is a, is a title taken from the Roman Republic, it's worth pointing out, um, but essentially this reduced the church to a department of government. Um, the church became like a department of government and its role was restricted to spiritual education and supervision of moral conduct, um, and that's in 1721. In the build-up towards the revolution, this actually becomes a big thing um, to the point where at there's a um, council in the first council. So there hadn't been. So when he deposed the patriarch, normally a council would be called by a patriarch, and so there is no council in Russia from 1721 until um, 1917. And in 1917, uh, following the February Revolution. So it's interesting because the czarist autocracy. So there have been there been calls for council from the eighteen um, hundreds, but the czarist autocracy had always held it back. Um, after the February Revolution, they immediately begin the process of beginning a council, um, mm-hmm. and the provisional government disestablished the civil procurator on the same day the council begins. So on the exact same day the council begins, um, the church ceases to formally be a, 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 a department of government in the same way um and you have and and then in october um so there were one of the debates they were having is whether they were going to restore the patriarchate or not um and there was lots and lots of back and forth on this. It was very controversial, but then in October after the revolution they were they rushed it through and they reappointed the patriarch and so you have a very odd situation in Russia in which the church government is under the bolsheviks is actually extremely new and people are negotiating that position even within the church right from the beginning
0: yeah that's so interesting because the stereotype that you usually get of the church and russian communism just in general is that well this is oil and water they were always that way from the beginning um you know uh the the communists hated christians and christians hated the communists and uh that was it like that's all there is to be said about it and I think it's interesting to make that story more complicated than it usually seems to be. Yeah, there's, there's
2: definitely a mutual
0: distrust.
2: Um, and to be fair, this mutual distrust is justified in some sense, insofar as the Bolsheviks and many other revolutionary groups had always insisted that the, the revolution must be an atheist and that they were an atheist party. And also insofar as for, this is just one example, um, um St. John of Kronstadt, who was a major he's he wasn't a saint yet, but he was a very revered holy man in the Russian church, um, in the immediately pre-revolutionary period. Like immediately, I think he died just before, but he was immediately pre-revolutionary. He had set here is a there's a quote in which he says he was very anti-revolutionary, he gave money towards the black hundreds who were like a fascist group, very mm-hmm. pro and he once said that the revolutionaries should be slaughtered like Moses slaughtered the rebels at Sinai. Um <laughs> So, and he was very influential, um, and so there isn't some, and so he's not atypical. Um, he's not the rule, but nor is he unusual, and so there is in some sense justification for mutual distrust, but that that is a simplistic picture as well.
1: So yeah, of course that's kind of simplistic, that's um, that's just the way history and podcasts work. I mean, I guess we can't really yeah. dive directly into it, but that is kind of a illuminating picture that gives a little bit more breadth to the understanding of uh, religion in the Russian Revolution, for sure. It's uh, illuminating for me, at least. I mean, we had um, many episodes ago now, like a really brief conversation about Lenin and religion, but that gives a whole different yeah. understanding to that kind of conversation now.
2: Yeah, and, and that I really enjoyed that episode. Um, I, but I think it's worth pointing out, I'm not going to... I mean, what, that, that was really good covering in Lenin, I think, fair, on what Lenin said. But it's worth saying that what Lenin said about religion um, in his documents sometimes was manifest in odd ways and perhaps jarring ways in practice.
1: Yeah. Right. Uh,
2: so, for example, um, I, I, well, I think part of the problem was, is that because they were an atheist party, the Bolsheviks didn't think they had to come up with a church policy and partially because they also assumed that religion would immediately die away following the revolution. Uh, and so they hadn't planned for what they would, for a church policy, and they hadn't planned for what would happen if it didn't. Um And so for example, Lenin says absolute separation of church and state, which to be fair I think is I think is good and correct. But the problem is is that in Russia um, the church's entire income was um, via so the state so the state gave massive subsidies to the church and the state's land was guaranteed by the church and part of the separation of church and state meant no exemption from state decrees for the church. Which meant that when the state nationalised all property, that included church property, um, which basically meant that the entirety of the the clergy, um, bishops down to parish priests, were left without any means of income. Um, which, and so you you have this, and so obviously there's attempts to resist the nationalisation of that property, um, mm-hmm. at which point. Obviously, the state then doubles down on them. So I think that there are problems with the separation of church and state isn't wrong, but you have to say more than that if you're going to actually address the situation in Russia at the time of the revolution.
1: Yeah. It's always really fascinating to me how um, that specific liberal impulse plays out in America and like actually how it is very similar to the way Lenin talks about it, <laughs> um, that there's like some kind of confluence between those two things um well dang <laughs> uh
0: well i mean i think um like the soviet union uh from the from the beginning i think it's pretty clear that they had a very hard time figuring out what to do with religion and um they did have like some very brutal and i think uh very not liberating um uh, moments of repression uh against um the church that was like totally unnecessary and that's awful um, I don't know, maybe we should do a whole podcast about that at some point or yeah. something, maybe not. But uh one thing that I am very interested in is uh these kinds of figures that were like orbiting both of these institutions, both the Orthodox Church and then also um you know the kind of burgeoning revolutionary government. And uh I mean, there are so many interesting characters to talk about. I'd like a very brief intellectual hobby period of my life where I was just reading a bunch of them at night for no conceivable reason, uh, much to the frustration of my uh, MA supervisor. But um, uh, I wonder if you could talk about some of these characters like, I mean, we've talked about them a bit on Twitter, but uh, one that I think is really fascinating is uh, Maria Skubstova. Um Maybe you could just like introduce her, say what you think about her. I don't actually know a ton, except that what I've like imbibed from, you know, reading an article here or there. Okay,
2: so Maria Skopstova uh,
0: just, I need to, I need to double check the dates.
2: But she was born um, some point in the eighteen hundreds, and she dies in Ravensbruck concentration camp um, in nineteen forty-two, I think. Um, she grew up in a kind of um, aristocratic household in St. Petersburg. Um, she became an atheist when she was fifteen, and her father died. Um, and she fell in with revolutionary groups. Um, she became a member of the Socialist Revolutionaries Party, which is one of the left parties that wasn't Bolshevik, but was involved in um, agitation and organising at the time of the revolution in the revolutionary period. And uh, many SRs did did eventually go over to the Bolsheviks um, when the Bolsheviks involved um, in post-party rule. Um, yeah, she she eventually during the civil war, she became mayor of a town in the Ukraine. During which time she was put on trial briefly by the Reds, but they left quite quickly, um, and then by the White Army. Um, It's during the occupation by the Reds, I believe, in which she said that she wants she there's there's reference to her planning to um, assassinate Trotsky. Um, (laughs) But I think everybody at some point, every major, every interesting figure who ever encountered Trotsky, I think, wanted to kill him. (laughs) That's actually that significant.
0: The Christians and atheists are like um,
2: Yeah, everybody. Nobody no I don't I just think Trotsky was a maybe not that great a guy to hang about with. Um <laughs> anyway. Um, um but she was the town was occupied by the white army, um and she was put on trial as a communist um by the whites. Um she got off um because the judge was sympathetic, the judge had been one of her teachers, um at, in adult education at some point. Um, and they eventually got married and they fled the country um, <laughs> and she ends up in Paris um, where she, and, and during her time as a mayor in the Ukraine, she had um, returned to Christianity. She'd returned to the church. Um, that's why she's still a socialist revolutionary. Um, and there's no record of her ever leaving the party, though I think probably when she arrived in Paris, its activities probably just kind of died um, you know, I don't think she was involved. Um, but when she got to Paris, over time, she eventually realizes that her vocation um, is in the religious life, um, and she, her and her husband get divorced. Um, that Dan, her and Daniel Scott Stover get divorced, and she takes um, her her birth name was Elizabeth, um, so she had been Elizabeth Scott Stover, Scott Stover married to Daniel Scott Stover, um, but she becomes Mother Maria. Um, after the mother of God Um, and she ran the houses for Russian immigrants um, because Russian immigrants there was basically no state provision for them Um, and often they were regularly put in mad houses for example because it was presumed they were insane when actually they were just traumatized and um, couldn't Mm -hmm. speak French Um, and so she went around those those um, asylums and kind of got them um, released Um, she ran the canteens and um, hostels and houses and that sort of thing, um, and then during the Nazi occupation, um, she began. Um, they began hiding Jews, um, and they were eventually caught forging baptism certificates for them, um, and sent. Her and various of her companions were sent to concentration camps, uh, where she died.
1: Wow! Yeah, what a what a figure. That's incredible. Yeah,
2: yeah. It's it's one of those amazing lives in which kind of like you kind of span the whole course of kind of 20th century, various things happening in the 20th century. Um, it's an interesting figure to interact with. Um,
0: yeah. I also can't think of any, well, I can't think of very many saints um, who are like directly involved in revolutionary governing, which is kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, she definitely moves away from politics. I, I think the whole emigre does.
2: Um, all... Oh, okay. There's there's a process over time during the in which the emigre theologians. It's slow, but by the sixties, the the emigre theologians have moved away from poli- politics and political reflection um, that had been previously very popular among theologians. And she's definitely involved in that in some sense. Um, her writings in Paris are more social than political, I'd say. They're more about how an individual relates to social problems than about the ordering of society. Um, but it's, it's interesting to me that she, she became, she returned to the faith while a mayor. Um, I don't think there's enough work done on that kind of precise point in her life. Um, hmm. I, I, it's partially, I think, because we have very little written record of it, but, but that precise point in her life when she's doing the work of governing, As a revolutionary, and also returning to the church and finding something in that, in that process.
0: Yeah, I think that's what attracted me to biographies of people like her. Um, You know, it's like while she's thinking uh, politically in this way, she's also thinking theologically in creative ways. Um, It's what uh, for a while I was really interested in these characters like Nikolai Rzhav and. Sergei Bulgakov, um, because they all, prior to the revolution, had been kind of like toying around with what it might mean to be a leftist and a Christian uh, in sort of um, unusual ways for both of them. Well, but, well, in different
2: degrees. I mean, Badaev, I don't know if you can call Badaev on the left, but he's closer to the left than, I think, Bulgakov. Bulgakov, I think, properly characterizes a liberal. He was involved in the founding of the Kadet Party. Um, right. And it's interesting in that he was involved in, so he had been a Marxist, um, as had many, and he was involved in what's a quite famous journal um, called um, Veki, which in Russian means milestones or landmarks or signposts. Um, And this journal was basically um, a journal of various members of the intelligentsia who rejected Christianity and turned... to idealism, but most of them to Christianity. There were, occasional, there were a few of them who weren't Christian and there was one or two Jewish writers, um, but a return to idealism and Christianity. Um, and that's larger liberal movements, but equally you have, um, there's a guy called Geschenzon who writes in probably the most controversial sentence of the journal. Um, so for, he wrote, so far from dreaming of union with the people, we ought to fear the people and bless this government, which with its prisons and bayonets still protects us from people's fury. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, um, the, these, the, a lot of these strains, you kind of get this weird mix of liberals and reactionaries and then people actually flirting with Marxism. Um, it can be quite difficult to exactly pin people down.
1: Okay so so far in this conversation we've had uh, a few different characters kind of come up out of uh, orthodoxy uh, and leftism uh, some that are a little bit more um interesting to us and more some that are not um so uh what do you do you think that the orthodox church or the orthodox christians that um float more towards the left have something specific to say to us in this sort of like contemporary place that we're in
2: I think yes um I think, yes, and, and this kind of curves the question a little bit. I think, yes, insofar as the situation we're in, and we're all living in the West. We're all living in places where the church hasn't been dominant. Um, and so I think there's a way in which there's a lot of very fruitful Orthodox reflection on history and on uh, relates to what I was saying about materiality, actually. But there's a lot of fruitful reflection on one's social obligations, one's obligations to history, and one's place in history, and how that relates to God, how that one relates to God in that, that I think can be much more fruitfully, I think those are very fruitful, and I think they're especially fruitful in a context in which the church is no longer a dominant social force, um, by which I mean a reactionary, no longer a institute of the, you know, the ruling class, um, and so in the West, I think there's a lot of fruitful material for a kind of, uh, how Christians can talk about the political problems in relation to God. Um, that I think that, yeah, I do think Orthodox theologians have something to offer there. Uh, that some of those, those orthodoxy that in Russia are quite difficult and quite ambivalent can become, I think they can be made much more fruitful, um, in that situation.
0: Uh, well, um, maybe we could just post you, as we close, Jonathan, just a basic question of uh, how do you think um, Orthodox Christians can contribute to like contemporary leftist struggles, and uh, how do you think that contemporary leftists can actually be maybe somehow more like um, more evangelical towards uh, Orthodox people who have a you know reasonably complicated relationship with uh, the left?
2: Yeah. Uh, to address the first, the second rather, to second, first. I would say that maybe leftists should listen to St. Paul's injunction in Corinthians, where he says that you should seek not to offend the weaker brother, Um, which I mean slightly, a slightly tongue-in-cheek way, in which lots of orthodox people are naturally uncomfortable with um, socialism, communism, and with particular figures especially. Um, Lenin, Lenin more more so than Stalin, actually. That's a different conversation for another day, maybe. but there's, there's a discomfort there. Um, and I think maybe when in, in conversations of Orthodox Christians bringing up those things, it shouldn't be assumed that these people are merely in, smug, trying to smuggle in fascist propaganda or something like that. Um, it should be assumed that they are sincerely, they sincerely have trouble um, and there should be effort made to kind of Talk about those problems and why they happened, and perhaps what why even if um, to talk about why both the Bolsheviks actions are understandable and why they were mistaken and how those mistakes happened and honesty there, um, which I think that I mean I'm I'm not a Leninist, but I actually think that even if you even if you're a Leninist, you can do that. Um, I don't think you have to actually. Um, oppose the USSR or reject what Lenin says um, to do that. Um, but and at the level of what can Orthodox Christians do to contribute to the left? I mean, I would I'd firstly say just to, to get involved, to actually do something, to turn up um, at organising meetings, to at, to turn up at. Um, and to get to get involved in, in the struggles directly, and I think that that actually um, can resolve a lot of theoretical questions that otherwise become very abstract.
1: Last week when we talked to Derek Ford, he said something kind of similar. Actually, that um, you find that like when you meet with people face to face and like organizing meetings or, or whatever, um, he was talking about the People's Congress of Resistance. But when you meet with them face to face, you find that some of those things that should be very contentious are all of a sudden not if you're actually there with them. So I think it's a a solid point to keep making forever
2: yeah and i mean that's my experience of left infighting as well and that when you're online especially things can seem very fraught um and in theoretical texts, but like in real life i've organized i mean the people i've organized have ranged from liberals to leninists you know and, and anarchists and all
1: sorts in between um and it's never really come up so <laughs> that's like so funny but um i mean i guess exactly the point of historical materialism uh <laughs> <laughs> so that's cool
0: Uh, Cool. Well, thanks a lot, Jonathan, for taking time out of your uh, busy study abroad schedule to hang out with us and chat a little bit. This is a really good time. Perfect for October. Yeah, no worries. Anytime.
1: Thanks for listening to Magnificast. As always, you should follow us on Twitter at the Magnificast. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook. We also have a have a Facebook group called the Magnificast Basement. You can jump in there and see all of the Lacroix related humor because that's basically what it is. Um, <laughs> subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Leave us a review. We're kind of out of them, so if you want to get on that review train, now is the time.
0: In, in fairness, we we recorded this one like back to back with the uh, with the Derek episode, so people just didn't leave a review within like two days. Yeah, I know. So like,
1: why not? Um, <laughs> yeah also follow us on SoundCloud and uh, all that good stuff um, if you want to support The Magnificast financially you can on Patreon uh, it's patreon.com slash The Magnificast we greatly appreciate all of um, all of our friends who do give us a little bit of that that sweet sweet uh, DOS capital uh, on Patreon that helps us out so much in paying um, for the few things this podcast costs us so thanks for all that alright thanks for listening